Good morning, Encounter Church. Go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word and make your way to the book of Micah. Uh, Micah chapter 2 is where we find yourself. My name's Michael, one of the pastors here, and uh, honored to be able to open God's Word uh, together alongside of each of it each of you here this morning. So Micah chapter 2, and again, uh, we're walking through this teaching series of the book of Micah, and so I just encourage you, uh, stick a bookmark there, uh, that way not only on Sunday mornings, but also during the course of your week, you can easily refer back to it and, uh, and study uh, throughout and meditate on it throughout the course of the week. Uh, Micah chapter 2, you'll find it there near the, old, the, near the end of the Old Testament, uh, so it might be easy to start in the book of Matthew and work your way back. Uh, Micah chapter 2, uh, right on the heels of the book of Jonah that we studied this fall. So Micah 2, and I'm going to read all of the chapter. And Lord willing, we'll make it through all of the chapter, and we'll see what God has in mind, right? Some of you are like, not a chance, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, verse 1, Micah wrote, he says, Woe to those who plan iniquity. To those who plot evil on their beds, at morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. And that day people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possessions is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. And therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Verse 6, Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things, or disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does He do such things? Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? Lately my people have risen up like an enemy, You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up and go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet. For this people. But I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. And the one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them. the Lord at their head. When you find yourself in a point of distress, who do you call? This morning, Kelly found herself, finds herself in a point of distress. And so she calls out, she reaches out to someone, someone who 
Lord willing, can assist her. Maybe you find yourself at a point of distress uh, where maybe your battery has run dead in your car, right? Have any of you ever been in that situation? Who do you call, right? You call a friend with some jumper cables, someone who, someone who, can, who can come alongside of, side you and, and give you a hand. Who do you call when maybe you're having some financial needs? You call someone, you call a good friend, someone who you know is going to be open and kind and generous to you, right? When we find ourselves in points of distress, when we find ourselves with our backs up against the wall, it's good to call out. It's good to turn to someone who is able to help you, right? Our children, we, we raise our children up uh, dreaming about superheroes, don't we? I saw Zay, he was walking through the hallway this morning, and I told Zay if he was in here, I'd call him up and let him be a sermon illustration for me, but he'll, we'll do it in his absence. He's carrying around two superheroes, Captain America in one hand and Spider-Man in the other, right? Classic heroes that people call out to in their distress, Well, finally, church, we find ourselves with some really good news in the book of Micah. It's been a troublesome two weeks, hasn't it? As we've been going through the book of Micah, and it seems as if we've been experiencing nothing but doom and gloom. And as I've warned you already, the book of Micah is almost 80% judgment that Micah is prophesying on these people. But here we have, at the end of chapter 2... We have some good news. We are given a glimpse of the one to whom we are privileged to be able to call out to. The one whom we can call out to in our distress. The one when life seems as if it's nothing more than just darkness and disappointment and frustration and even failure. There is one who hears our call. The title of the sermon this morning is The Shepherd King, and the big idea is this, the big idea is that we are called, we should hope in the Shepherd King. We should hope in the Shepherd King. It really is, it's probably not a hero's type title that maybe we would necessarily come up with, but I think at the end of here we will will be grateful that the hero is a Shepherd King. He's a shepherd king. So now, now we find ourselves, and again, uh, just I think this is helpful for us as we, as we walk through the book of Micah, because a lot of this ancient history, uh, many of us, we're just not familiar with. And oh, you know, it's fun for me because I'm able to learn and, and grow in my, uh, hopefully, understanding of some of these Old Testament, this history. Uh, but we're reminded that during the time in which Micah is writing this prophecy, Uh, The nation of Israel, God's people, they were a divided kingdom. After King Solomon's reign, the kingdom became divided, and you had uh, ten tribes who made up the northern kingdom that was often known as Israel. The capital of Israel was Samaria. And then you had the southern kingdom, known as Judah, made up of two tribes, and their capital was Jerusalem. Many of the Old Testament prophets... We have, we have a, a whole list of prophets there in the Old Testament. Many of them were speaking, they were God's mouthpiece to these different kingdoms. Some of them were specifically assigned to be a mouthpiece to the northern kingdom. 
Others of them were specifically assigned by God to be mouthpieces to the southern kingdom. And the time in which we're looking at is is the 700s B.C. And you have to always keep this in mind. It's a little bit tricky because keep in mind, B.C. counts backwards, right? Right? We live in a time in which you, you count up. Here soon, we'll enter into the year 2023, Hard to believe, isn't it? And, and so we're counting up, but in, as we know it, as we view it, they, they count backwards. And so you're there around 730s, 720s BC. And so Micah, again specifically, he's prophesying specifically to the southern kingdom, but often making references to the northern kingdom. In particular, uh, the fact that God's judgment is coming to the northern kingdom because of their idolatry. And God is going to use a nation or an empire by the the name of the Assyrian Empire. And God is going to use them as his tool of judgment on the northern kingdom in which they will then carry the northern kingdom off into exile as God's judgment for their idolatry and their sin and their disobedience against God. And Micah then is warning the southern kingdom that what they witness happen to the northern kingdom is going to also soon happen to them by another empire, by the Babylonian empire, and it will happen about 125 years after the Assyrians invade the northern kingdom and take them into exile. And so, so he's speaking judgment to them. Again, it is, it's, it's, it's filled with doom and gloom, but then he gives us these incredible glimmers that there is a hero. Right? Isn't, that, isn't that such good news to know that when you are in a time of desperation and you, and you call a friend or you call someone who you know is able to help, when they actually pick up the phone, and when they actually offer to help you. And so, so Micah is he's giving us the darkness of the situation. But boy, there is incredible light that peeks through. And so we're going to look here as we try to find ourselves, as we, as followers of Jesus Christ, even living in this time, and maybe you are walking through a dark time of your life. right? Maybe you are in a deep valley The hope of this sermon is that we will take what Micah teaches and what what Micah uh, prophesies to these people all those years ago, that we will take it and we will apply it to our own hearts, our own lives. Well, let's look here and let's try to walk through it. It is a bit confusing when you just kind of read it the first time through, especially even when you read it the tenth time through, it still is a bit confusing. Uh, But let's see if we can uncover what exactly he has to say. First, we're going to see that Micah, in these first five verses, what he's doing is he's rebuking these oppressive rulers. All right, He's he's rebuking these these men who take advantage of the vulnerable. And we see there in verse 1, he uses this attention-grabbing word. He says, woe to those who plan iniquity. To those who plot evil on their beds, at morning's light, they carry it out because it's, it's in their power to do it. He's getting their attention. It's an, expressive, uh, it's an expression that's awfully used in a rather abrupt fashion. And what Micah is doing is he's, he's getting their attention to announce judgment. And he's, he's primarily drawing the attention, trying to capture the attention of those who are taking advantage of the poor and the needy and the vulnerable there in the land. Again, uh, as we learned on that first week, Mike is a country boy. 
All right, and so Micah, certainly he is prophesying to the city of Jerusalem, but he's also prophesying to the, the outskirts of the city, to those who are living in the countryside. And, and so what was taking place is these powerful and these rich people, we'll call them land sharks, right? These people who are, they're, they're going in and they're taking advantage of those who live out there on the outskirts and they're, they're taking their land, they're taking their houses, their inheritance. And he says that these these individuals are planning iniquity, right? It's, it's, it's one thing to respond in an evil way, but what we see here is Micah calls them out because these individuals are planning evil while they lie awake at night, right? They're so dedicated to practicing wickedness against their neighbors is that as they're lying in bed, they're scheming of new ways, new, new ideas. How can I go and and get such and such as their land over here. How can, I get, how can I get this widow's house from her? So he's calling out a, a sin that is premeditated. Their actions are being carefully planned out. And we notice, when are they doing this scheming? They're doing this scheming at nighttime. While they lie awake in bed. Right? Think about this, right? God gives us the gift of rest. Can I give an amen, get an amen for a good nap or a good night's rest? Right? Rest is one of God's greatest blessings to us. We all enjoy a good night's rest. And in fact, for most of us, the alarm clock rings much earlier than we prefer. How many of you hit the snooze button this morning? Yeah, Tom, thank you, the only honest man in here, I see. I'm right there with you, brother, right? Some of us, we have trouble sleeping at night, don't we? Because maybe we're thinking through a project at work. Maybe we're worried about the bills we're going to pay. Maybe we're thinking through a relationship dilemma. Maybe we're thinking about our children. For a lot of us, we lose sleep because of life's concerns. Recently, one of our children was having trouble sleeping. And they came down and, of course, in their trouble to sleep, decided to wake us up. So we now had trouble sleeping. And came down and told us they were asleep and encouraged them. And this, this is a good practice for all of us. I encouraged them. I said, well, either pray or read your Bible, right? Because one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to stay awake and read a lot of God's word, which is a plus, or the devil will put you to sleep through it, which is a plus two, isn't it? It's a win-win. And so what he did the next morning, I realized he, he came down, so now you've narrowed it down to four. Uh, he came down and he said, Dad, he said, I picked up my Bible and uh, I read in the book of Job. He said, I read 20 chapters in the book of Job. So it took him a bit to get to sleep. right? So, but rest is one of those gifts that God gives us. And here we see in this scripture passage, these men were using rest not as a way to enjoy God's favor, but instead as a way to take advantage of God's people. And Micah condemns the oppressive person for, for taking God's rest as, a, as an opportunity to invent evil, to dream up more creative ways to defraud their neighbor. And then Micah tells us, it says, when the sun comes up, what do they do? They put their plan into action. You see, it's, the, it's after a good night's rest that the righteous person awakens and rises in the morning ready to serve the Lord, but the wicked person dreams of ways to sin, and they jump out of bed ready to serve themselves for one more dollar, just one more deal, 
Just get me, help me to, may may I land one more contract? And so now verse 2 then goes on and it gives us the specific ways of their plans. What did their plan look like that they're dreaming and scheming at night? Verse 2 tells us, it says they covet fields and they seize them and houses and they take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. These land sharks, their entire enterprise was built on manipulation and deceit. Their entire enterprise was built on taking advantage of their neighbors. And their their victims were ordinary people with ordinary means. They probably just had one field to their name and probably just had one single dwelling structure to their name. And for in, in, in a lot of those situations, those fields, that field was, 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 was what supplied their needs. And it, not only did it supply their needs in, in this generation, but it was going to be what they passed on to their children as a, as, as a means of inheritance for their children. And so what these people who are dreaming and scheming at night, what they did is they would go seize and defraud these people. It gives us a sense that this property was taken from them by force. By deceitful means, what they owned was almost torn right from them. Again, they lived in an agrarian economy. And that field was a person's means of income. They depended on that field. And in fact, for that reason, the inheritance of a person was actually safeguarded by the Old Testament law. Right? As, as the people took the promised land, as God gave them the promised land, if you remember, land was divided out among the people of God. And God was, right, right, that was their social security system in that day, is God would give people a plot of land. Now, obviously, it's up to them to till the land, and they have to be responsible to do the work, but God gave them that means to say, use this. And so it was, it was distributed among the people. And in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 17, it actually places what these men were doing, land grabbing, these land sharks who were going in and taking this land from these people, it, 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 it labels that as a, as a wicked sin against their neighbors. In fact, right, in Deuteronomy chapter 27, starting there in verse 15, Right? Moses says, cursed is anyone who makes an idol. So that's kind of like the top one. Cursed, if, if you make an idol, curse, right? That's a, a thing that's detestable to the Lord. And then it's cursed is anyone who dishonors their father and mother, right? In, in, in the Old Testament, we're told to honor your father and mother, right? They're in, the, in the, uh, the Ten Commandments. And then following, that third one is this, is cursed is anyone who moves their neighbor's boundary stone. Cursed is someone who takes advantage of their neighbor, that maybe at nighttime they would go and move the boundary stone a little bit to, to give them a little bit more land. Such a situation to lose your land was, it would lead to an enormous economic grief. It was more than just a piece of real estate. Your land was a sacred trust. You were robbing people of their family property. It struck at the very core of the covenant relationship with Yahweh because the land was your social security. And so we see here the reason why these land barons schemed is given to us then in, at the beginning of verse 2. What does it say? It says that they coveted the land, didn't they, right? It says, verse 2, they covet fields and seize them. We covet when we are envious of what other people have. 
We covet when we desire another person's possessions. Coveting is a lusting after something that is not our own. And these land sharks, these land barons, what, what they're doing is they're violating that 10th commandment that you shall not covet. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. You see, when we covet in our hearts, we no longer have room for compassion. Right? The very vulnerable people, those people who were in need, whom they should have been having compassion on, Instead, they saw that person as an opportunity to take advantage of them. And you can't have compassion and covet at the same time. The two cannot exist in our hearts simultaneously. We know that the answer to coveting is contentment. Learning how to trust the Lord and to be content in His provision And as we grow in our contentment with what God has given us, then it allows us to in turn be compassionate to others. Right? The answer to coveting is contentment. And when you learn to be content, then you learn to have a loose grip on the things of this world that God has given us. So I wonder, what do you think about when you lie down on your bed? Is your mind consumed with one more dollar. Now this is not speaking, I understand this is not speaking against hard work, right? We should be hard workers. It's not speaking against an honest day's wage and being fair. What it's speaking about is taking advantage of people in our business dealings. Are you consumed with always getting ahead? Are you always scheming new ways to make more money? And are you doing that at the expense of other people? Jesus warned us to be on our guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, right? We live in a world where you pick up your phone and it knows your heart almost better than we know our own. Those crazy algorithms get us every time. Or it presents to us just one more little trinket that we should buy. And with the ease of a button, we can have it at our doorstep in 24 hours. Talk about a battle of learning how to be content in the Lord. And if we're going to be a content people, then we have to battle against that. And we, why, do, why should we want to be learn, to learn to be content in what God has given us? So then we can have compassion toward other people. So that way, as we lie awake, as we lie awake in our beds, as we it must be leaning back a little bit too far. As we as we lie awake in our beds, we're not dreaming of how we can get ahead a little bit more, but how we can help others and show compassion on them. Well, then verse three through five provides us with God's response to the land baron's oppression. Follow along with me. Look there at your copy of God's word. It says, "Therefore, the Lord says." I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, uh, people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possessions is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. 
And therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by, by lot. Praise the Lord that not everyone was asleep while the land barons schemed in the darkness. God saw. God saw their actions. He was paying attention to their evil deeds. Passages like these should remind us that God owns the scales of justice. And that God, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And that God will get the final word. And for those who are oppressed, those who are vulnerable, those who are wrongly taken advantage of, they can rest in that truth that God has not forgotten them. Even when it seems like God's response to injustice is too small, is too slow or insufficient, God reminds us that God does see and that God will act. And this is a judgment that he's speaking out against these land barons, these men who are, ta- who are wrongly taking advantage of the vulnerable. These men who have brought disaster on the poor and vulnerable, God says, I will bring disaster on you. And God takes full responsibility. God doesn't shy away. Again, God's not looking for a PR agent to somehow spin this in his favor to make him him look favorable to public opinion. God directly says, I will bring disaster on these people who have brought disaster on the lives of other people. Those who walk in the proud air of wealth and prosperity that was unjustly gained at the expense of others, God says, you will come to ruin. Side deals and backroom meetings, God says, is leading to your public humiliation. And Micah's prophecy indeed comes true. Soon thereafter, as the Assyrian army advanced down into the southern kingdom of Judah and that countryside around Jerusalem, keep in mind, right, we know that the northern kingdom was carried off into exile by the Assyrian army, but we often forget the Assyrian army also made inroads into the southern kingdom. In fact, the Assyrian army laid siege to Jerusalem itself. And that's where King Hezekiah, if you're familiar with King Hezekiah, when King Hezekiah, Micah's prophecy actually made it to King Hezekiah. And as Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrian army, he prays, he turns to the Lord in that moment. And if you remember the next morning, right over 100,000 of the Assyrian army, he looks outside the, the walls. And what is it? God showed up. And the Assyrian army fighters, they're, they're dead. They're in their tracks. So we have to understand that, that this prophecy does come true. And these real estate tycoons, even there in Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside, these, these, these tycoons who had mistreated their own countrymen, they are carried off into exile. And the property that they had unjustly acquired, what does it say? It talks about how it's assigned to traitors. It's assigned to the Assyrian army. They come and they now take up residence there. And God says, I've used them as a means of judgment. Church, I think there's some lessons here for us to learn and how we treat the vulnerable in our business dealings with other people. Do we respond to those, the poor and the needy, and do we look at their situation and and see it as an opportunity to get a cheap deal? Because we covet in our hearts 
Or do we learn to be content and have compassion and try to help them along the way? I think there's a lesson here for us that we can learn and be challenged by and a time even for us to evaluate our own hearts and how we view those who are our very neighbors that we've been called to be compassionate toward. Well, then we've got to keep moving on in verse 6. Then we see that Mike is going to expose the false teachers. So not only is he, is he rebuking the land barons who are taking advantage of other people, now he's exposing these false teachers who live there in the land. In verse 6, Micah turns his attention toward the false prophets, these oppressive preachers. Micah is rebuking the preachers of, of, of teaching us sermons of smooth things. The issue at hand is that the preachers... They had abandoned God's word, and instead they were preaching feel-good messages, sermons that failed to address specific sins, sermons that preferred to avoid certain topics because the, the, the weight of public opinion was against these certain topics, and so the preacher didn't address them. Verse 6 now gives us this idea that these false prophets are now talking to Micah and they're telling Micah, buddy, you better be quiet, okay? You're not doing any of us any favors here. And that's where they say, again, if they're speaking to Micah, here's what they're saying. Do not prophesy, Micah. What are you doing? Their prophets say. He's, they go on. He says, do not prophesy against these things. Disgrace, it's going to overtake us, right? We see there in verse 6. Do not prophesy against these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. So, so here's what they're saying. They're saying, Micah, your sermon is one of God's judgment. Our sermons have been feel-good message, messages. And so what they say is, by them saying, disgrace will not overtake us, Micah is saying, we are entering into a time of, of great disgrace by God's judgment. It goes against their feel-good good sermons. And so they're directly telling Micah, be quiet. What seems to be taking place is the prophets of the southern kingdom are instructing Micah to stop prophesying against the land barons, right? The, the false prophets might be in cahoots with these land barons. Mike, Micah's words might be upsetting the land barons as he exposes their evil business deal, dealings. Micah's warning of God's judgment against their sinful practices. And it goes against what the false prophets were doing who were giving a false sense of security. See, the role of a prophet was to address the sin of the people and not to take refuge in the practice of giving easygoing sermons. One of the most important institutions in this day was the prophet, in our day is the preacher's pulpit. The preacher's pulpit is the place where truth should be declared. One of the final places, it seems, where truth is declared. The prophet and the preacher stands in the gap between the lies of this world and the hearts of the people. And the sacredness of being a prophet or a preacher, it's a hill that's worth dying on. And when the prophet or the preacher departs from this truth and when they begin to speak easy things, the red carpet is rolled out for God's judgment. And then verse 7 provides us with God's response. Right? How does God respond to those false prophets 
who've been telling the people, no, judgment is not going to come over you. It's all going to be fine. Don't listen to this Micah guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Verse 7 tells us God's response. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Because that's their message. Their their message, these false prophets, the message you're telling them is that God is patient. He's a patient God. He's certainly not going to bring judgment to us. He's patient. But God says, but does the Lord become impatient? Does my impatient, does my patience eventually run dry? Does he do such things? He's asking these questions. The false prophets, they've been, they've been easing the conscience of the people by continually reminding the people of God's patience towards sinners. And yes, God is patient. He is kind. But there's a day coming when God will hold men and women accountable for their sins. So Micah's question, or as God asks that question, is, will my patience run dry? Micah essentially is saying yes. But then you notice that Micah's question then highlights the end of God's patience toward the people and their sin. He says that God's judgment is on the move. But notice, look there, right? I think verse, verse 7, if you're an underliner, I think uh, this is a great verse to underline that last, that last verse. It says that, do not my words do good to the, the one whose ways are upright. In other words, what Micah is saying is that those who walk in righteousness will receive my words and it will be of great benefit to them. But those who walk in unrighteousness, those who oppose the ways of God, his words are words of judgment. And so Micah is calling out these false prophets. He's exposing them. We go on then in verses 8 and 9. Micah provides further specifics on the sin of the people. He says, Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without care like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. It should not surprise us that when the, when the preacher or the prophet abandons what is true, that the people then begin to live in rebellion. That when we fail to surrender, when we fail to speak what is right and true, it's not helpful to us. <laughs> I understand. We don't always like hearing what, we, what God has for us. It's difficult for us to hear because we have sinful hearts, but we need to hear it. And it's important. So that's where, that's where Micah says, that's where God, speaking through Micah, says, do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright. That when God's word calls out our sin, we should be grateful for it. And we should submit and surrender and say, God, I trust that you know better than I do. Because as the false prophets abandoned what is true and instead spoke these easy things to the people, it affects their community. It affects affects their culture. Their neighbors have become enemies because of their selfish pursuits. They've neglected to love their neighbors because their love now isn't for other people, but their love is only for themselves. Micah speaks out against their inhospitality toward their neighbors. The people have become inhospitable toward the stranger who's passing through the land. That when when a stranger passed through their land, they were to show hospitality to that person. But instead, they realized they coveted their nice robe. And they're like, man, that's a really nice robe. Where'd you get that? 
and they took it from them. They robbed them even of their robe. These people aren't giving their actions a second thought. Mike lays out that the women and children then are even driven from their homes. Widows no longer have a home to live in. And children are stripped of the security of an inheritance. And it's an inheritance that served as God's blessing to the people. So verse 10 then says, get up and go away, for this is not your resting place. It's defiled. It is ruined. It's beyond all remedy. He is tipping his hat. He's, he's, he's pulling back the curtains a little bit, saying that judgment is coming even, on to, even to Judah. Micah acknowledges that Judah has reached that point of no return. The promised land that God had given to the people that was to be a place of rest for them, that was to be an, inher- an eternal inheritance for them, has, has become a place where they can't rest, a place that is disgraced because of their sin. The people had defiled the land. It's no longer fit for them to live in. Just as the land barons had evicted the vulnerable from their homes through shady deals and, de- and deceit, God was now evicting the scheming wealthy elite through their, through their deceitfulness, and he's evicting the false prophets from their, from their pulpits. The people are, are going to be carried away. The greed of these men not only destroy, destroyed the lives of others, but it came full circle, and it destroyed their own lives and families as well. Verse 11, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will, prophesy, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this person. In other words, I mean, that, that, that just seems to be the world in which we live today. Because by speaking about the prophecy of wine and beer, it's prophesying an easygoing, fun-filled, pleasure-seeking life that doesn't take responsibility for a person's actions. Right? This oracle of judgment, it concludes with Micah highlighting how the people have abandoned God's word for the preaching of comfort, for the preaching of just convenience and ease, for the preaching of pleasure. Their desires were bent toward nothing more than affluence and entertainment rather than compassion, generosity, and caring for one another. So if a preacher shows up and hangs a sign outside the church door and says, free beer, he'd say, that's the type of preacher the people want because they want nothing more than pleasure for themselves. God says, I'm going to judge that. Here's the good news, all right? If you've been sleeping the whole time, wake up for the good news, all right? Because now Micah foretells the hero. We've been walking through this dark tunnel for the last three weeks. We'll go back into the dark tunnel again next week. But for this moment, let's relish the fact that there's a hero who shows up. And it's a hero that maybe we wouldn't necessarily expect because Micah foretells a shepherd king to come. Finally, we catch a glimmer of great hope at the end of this dark tunnel of sin and judgment that we've been walking through because Micah prophesies a deliverer who's going to come as a shepherd king, verses 12 and 13. He says, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. 
The one who breaks open the way will go up before them, and they will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, and the Lord will be at their head. The certainty of this promise is emphasized by God's word. We see it there by God's words. There in verse 12, he says, I will. Again, shortly thereafter, the next sentence, he says, I will. And then he, he goes on and he says, I will again. In a similar way, right, it, it echoes God's judgment on Samaria that we saw there in chapter 1 where God says, I will make Samaria a, re, a, a heap of rubble. I will pour her sins out into the valley. I will destroy all of her images. God, who says this judgment is by my hand, he now comes and says that there's a hero coming and I'm the one who's, who's sending him. With these same words, he also promised deliverance from exile for the remnant. We have to be reminded that not everyone was going to survive the exile, the judgment, that many would not survive. But God will be faithful to his promise to deliver. To the remnant, God will be a shepherd to them. Think about this, right? He, he, he says that, that when you are carried off into exile, he says, I'm still going to be faithful to you. I'll be faithful to that remnant and I will gather you from that time of exile. I will together together a remnant, a group of you. It might not be all it won't be all of you, but it will be a group of you and you will be given the land again. And that God will be a shepherd to them. He will protect them. You think about the activity of a shepherd protecting them, gathering the sheep in a pen, giving them a place of safety. It says he's also going to lead them to pasture. The shepherd is, is going to be a means of provision for the remnant. The shepherd cares for his sheep. Unlike the land barons who took advantage of the vulnerable, the shepherd is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. Rather than stealing their inheritance, the shepherd is going to lead them into an eternal inheritance. Micah also prophesies of this hero not only being a shepherd, but he says being a king, a captain of the guard, that the one who will lead them by the power of his word and the people will be led out into victory as they follow the king. It's the king, Micah says there in verse 13. It's the king who is going to lead them. It's this shepherd king who is gentle, who is lowly, who cares for, who takes the vulnerable and, and their hurts and their struggles and, what they're, and, and, and he welcomes them and he cares for them. He provides for them a place of safety. He provides for them their provision, but not only does that, he's the shepherd who gathers the sheep, but then he's also the one who leads us into victory. It's this king who goes before them. It's the king who will break through the gate. It's the king who is at their head. Now, many believe that this particular prophecy of the shepherd king is partially fulfilled in King Hezekiah that I mentioned earlier, that it's partially fulfilled in King Hezekiah, but we see the fulfillment of this fully in Jesus Christ. Because didn't Jesus tell us there in John's gospel? He said, I am the good shepherd. Wasn't Jesus referred to as 
the king of kings? This shepherd king sounds a whole lot like Jesus. Rather than bringing oppression like the land barons, Jesus brings freedom. Rather than making false claims, the shepherd king gives faithful promises. Rather than taking life from us, the shepherd king gives abundant life to us. Rather than walking around in pride and arrogance like the land barons did, this shepherd king lays down his life in humility and service. Rather than catering to the rich and the famous, the shepherd king calls out the poor and lowly and invites them to come to his banquet table. Rather than stealing homes and inheritance, he gives us full rights as sons and daughters in an eternal home and his riches. Rather than defiling our land of rest, Jesus come, says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are carrying heavy burdens, for I will give you rest. Rather than telling us what we want to hear, the shepherd king, he tells us what we need to hear. Rather than leading us astray, the shepherd king leads us in victory. Everything that these land barons and the false prophets were, the shepherd king is not. And never did the land baron, never did the false prophet give their life for the people. But Jesus, the shepherd king, did. And church, we look forward to his return. We live in a day and age where we want instant everything, don't we? And so we read passages of prophecy like this, and it's, it's hard for us to truly grasp and understand because we don't know how to wait. We don't know how to anticipate. We don't know how to fix our eyes on something that's coming and say, I'm looking forward to that. We live in a day and age in which you can download an app from your local pizza joint and watch your pizza as it's being made just to make sure it's going to get to you on time. We don't know how to wait. We read passages like these and you have to ask the Lord, you have to train your heart to say, God, I'm waiting on the return of this shepherd king. So God, as I walk through this dark season of my life, as I go through this difficult time, I'm not going to be overcome with despair. I'm not going to allow disappointment to rule my life. I'm not going to allow bitterness to settle in. Because there's a shepherd king who's promised to return. And we have to fight against that. We have to train our hearts to anticipate and to believe and to know with certainty that he will come again. And it's the coronation of the shepherd king the cross of Calvary was the coronation of the shepherd king, right? The resurrection 
of the shepherd king gives us that hope and that certainty of Jesus' return. That he is going to even out the scales of justice. And that the vulnerable and the oppressed of this world will have their day in court. And that God will take vengeance on those who have been unfair and have treated them in a wicked way. So whatever it is that you're experiencing right now, whatever you're going through, learn to hope in the shepherd king.